Hi, Jonathan Biss. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for uh, having the time today to talk about your uh, new recording. Oh, very happy to do so. Now, Jonathan, um, we've been following your Beethoven series for, well, as long as you've been releasing these discs. I was looking back over the early ones, um, 2012 or so for Volume 1, and now here we are at the end of the series. All still alive. (laughs) (laughs) Quite a journey, I would imagine, for you. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, anytime you do anything for nine years, it's, um, you know, an emotional thing to come to the end of it. And certainly nine years of recording, which is an extremely intense process, and recording this body of music, which is as uh, meaningful and um, confronting and, and profound as anything I know, it, it was a huge thing to come to the end. I, I really was a, I was a, I was a big old mess of emotions when I, played the last take of the last movie. Being at the end of that project, being, you know, closing the chapter, as it were, and then with that incredibly ethereal and sublime music of that final movement, yeah. too. Yeah, absolutely. No, there is, you know, it's funny, 111, it's the last piano sonata, but it's not really the end of his life. He lived five more years and wrote, you know, ten more probably really great masterpieces, the quartets, the Ninth Symphony, the Mises Solemnus, the Diabelli Variations. And yet, I don't think there is another piece of his that has so much the the sense of leave taking as one eleven. You know, that last movement from the beginning of it has this almost eerie sense of inner calm, and then goes through these unbelievable adventures, and then just disappears into the the ether at the end. And yeah, that moment when I I played what I knew was going to be the last take of it that that won't leave me anytime soon. <laughs> and so that's also nine years of your life. I mean, you know, you're a professional musician, but you weren't doing spending all your time on, on Beethoven. You had a life to live, too. And so um, this has been something of a journey for you, I imagine. It's made an imprint on you, um, and you must feel like you're in a different place than when you sat down to do that first recording. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's something a little bit foolhardy, right, about uh, taking on a project that will last that long because you just have no idea where life will take you. And, yeah, certainly in many senses when I look at where I was then and where I am now, I could never have imagined, you know, a lot of aspects of my life or how I would feel about being a musician or person. (laughs) Um, But I think that's maybe also the beauty of it, that there are some things that are so profound that... There's no set of life circumstances that would um, mean that they, 
you know, don't have meaning for you. And the Beethoven sonatas are so profound that wherever life was going to take me, I kind of knew I would still want to be engaged with them, and that proved to be very true. They, you know, and I've, I've recorded them now, but they're they're not going to be less important to me um, next month or ten or twenty or forty years from now. Now, Jonathan, back, I would say, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, and probably before that, when record companies started to say, hey, we can do complete sets of everything now. Let's have Alfred Brendel record them all, and we'll put them primarily in published or chronological order. But I've been seeing pianists kind of move away from that in recent years. Um, about a year or so ago, I interviewed the Welsh pianist Lear Williams, mm-hmm. who did something similar to what you did, where he... He sort of looked at these sonatas and said, I think that would go well together with that. Yeah. Was your approach just like Lear Williams, or did you have other ideas in mind? Well, I think the Beethoven sonatas are probably the only body of music that I would ever think to play or record complete. I'm in general not especially attracted to that way of thinking, but I, I think that the the Beethoven sonatas merited be, not just because the quality of the music is so high, but because the variety is so really astonishing. Uh, that's, I think, the, the justification for playing the cycle. And therefore, um, I tried to showcase that variety on each disc as much as possible. That was my priority in dividing them up, is to sort of have... If I, you know, I realize people probably don't listen to these discs generally from start to finish. But if someone did, I want would want them to think, A, I can't believe that's all spring from the imagination of the same person and be, I can't believe those pieces are all called sonata like what is the common link between them in terms of you know number of movements sequence of movements sort of um, general shape in terms of where the emotional hills and valleys are and you know or in, in terms of character you know some of these pieces are so like uproariously funny and then others of course are so metaphysical so I, that was really what I was trying to convey was this fantastic breadth of character and what a character beethoven is but also human being i mean we think of him as this angry guy he's always scowling in the paintings and so forth but he was a funny guy too wasn't he i mean his humor comes through in his music he wrote a piece called rage at a lost penny i mean that tells you a lot about him right and there are some of the sonatas where you have the feeling of you know you know i think of Opus 31, number one, the first movement, where it's, it's you know, it's as if he's trying to evoke a dog chasing his own tail. You know, there's a lot of that. He is, he's earthy. He has a sense of humor that's sometimes sophisticated, but sometimes not, you know, and he likes his own jokes sometimes enough that he repeats them over and over and over again. I th- and I think this very earthy, very human side of Beethoven makes his, the, the genius, all the more um, kind of potent. You know, you, this is like, he's like a guy. You know, he's a, there's something very flesh and blood about him, even though he expressed the most profound things imaginable, really. And I guess over history, sometimes that uh, profoundness maybe got, would you say, almost blown out of proportion at times by some people? I mean, almost like we're making it bigger than it really is, or or have we been on track with that pretty well? I don't think it's that it's that it, we've made it bigger than it is. I think that being in awe of something is not a useful starting point for a relationship with it. I think that you should try to address any artist or work of art um, just as openly as possible. And I've really tried that with Beethoven, even though this is an awe, this is an awe-inspiring person. This isn't just a 
personality that's so enormous. Just try to look at it with clear eyes, and uh, I think actually, ironically, that makes let some, will sometimes leave you all the more amazed. But yeah, I think sort of being genuflecting is not a good posture for a musician, or I would argue a person. I I know that we're looking back over a lot of years, but the, were there any times along the way where you sat down like, okay, I'm going to do these three sonatas in this volume, start to play them, and then just by being with Beethoven's music and working through it, you suddenly re- something just suddenly leaped out at you that you hadn't noticed before. Any kind of oh, l- l- like so so often. I mean, I I'm thinking of the Appassionata, which I've played since I was 14, and there are connections between the outer movements which I had played like I had played dozens of times without noticing them I mean and that happens constantly I mean they're not necessarily always revelations but like just little aspects of the music or like a moment in the music that suddenly I'll realize oh that's a really critical kind of pivot point in this piece and I hadn't occurred to me before I do think that is the main thing that distinguishes good music from great music that you don't come to an end of what you can discover about it Jonathan, on this recording, I'm, and by the way, I, I love that you have always written your own notes. It's so wonderful to be oh. able to get the soloist's thoughts about the music. As much as I love uh, musicologists and people who contribute <laughs> writings for other artists, they don't always have time, but you had the time, you took the time. And one the, the way you start out the notes about this final volume is about question marks, you say. Question. Hmm. Do you... you the other thing I wanted to share with the listeners is that you say that you almost write nothing in your music. Lots of people write, I'm going to be in the pencil, you write, I'm going to do this here and I'm do that there. And you don't do that. And uh, that some of your teachers, you, you kind of got on their nerves maybe, or they were amused yes. in your youth. But what about the question marks? What do you mean about that exactly? Well, I do think that music is in a very profound way a language. And one of the th- things that means is that it has grammar, uh, and that means, you know, almost everything in music can be divided into paragraphs and sentences. And sometimes those sentences end in a period or an exclamation point. Sometimes they end in an ellipsis. And very often in Beethoven's music, they end in a question. You, the, the, they don't end with a cadence or a resolution. The intonation, the voice would be turned upward to finish it. And... I think that's a very critical aspect of Beethoven's personality, that he's much less interested in providing answers than in um, asking the questions and putting the, the listener in contact with the questions, the, the big questions about human experience and human existence and uh, you know man's place in the universe.
you also mentioned that each of these sonatas that you choose, and I should go over them quickly, sonata number seven in D major, which is from opus 10, number 18 from opus 31, and then number 32, which we know is part of that grand final trilogy. But they are the, culmin they are the culmination. They're the, the, the third and final of each of those published sets. Yeah. The culmination, yeah. as you say. Yeah. Does it seem yeah. like that's no, the final it, word? Yes. No, I think that Beethoven in general, when he wrote things in groups of three, the, the third um, work tended to be the most ambitious. And that is the case in Opus 10. I would, it was 31, 31, it's more arguable. I think you could make that argument. And certainly 111 is, is the most metaphysical of the sonatas. It, it um, yeah, it, it, again, it takes leave of this genre that had been like his personal diary for decades in the most mysterious and the most uh, prof profound way imaginable. I mean, there is a, the ending is a kind of a, a disappearance, a sort of a, a, an entering into the void, which is, uh, talk about a question. It's so, um, it's so profound. It's, I, I, I feel like I'm just going back to the same words, but, you know, this is a case where music really is just so far beyond words. This year, everyone around the world is, who's in classical music is aware that this is the 250th anniversary of the birth of Beethoven. Of course, when you think back 250 years, he hadn't done anything yet. But uh, <laughs> but we're celebrating the legacy of Beethoven. And you've, you've completed the recording. Uh, that's now several months behind you, and in some cases, years behind you. But um, I would imagine that you're, you're going to be pretty busy this year and that Beethoven's going to turn up in some of your concerts, right? Yeah, no, I mean, it's really a year that's turned over to Beethoven almost exclusively. I'm playing the 32 sonatas as a cycle in many places, and I'm playing um, individual recitals of his music sort of all over the world. It's, uh, yeah, it's all Beethoven all the time for me this year. So what what do you do, Jonathan, when you're, you're setting about to do one of these cycles? Are you thinking like, now what did I do back in 2015 when I recorded that? Or is it just like, I'm starting fresh? Yeah, it's. I mean, a, a recital program tends to be somewhat longer than a recording, so I I've grouped the pieces in completely different ways, and that's what that's really been kind of telling. That I already said that I tried to put the recordings together to showcase the variety of the music, but I found that in making the concert programs, I could do a completely different arrangement of the sonatas, and they would still seem very diverse. I mean, he really. I I always say about Beethoven that with the sonatas, he reinvented the wheel thirty-one times. So, yeah, it's it's kind of almost difficult to put four or five of these pieces in a program together and have it be a bad program. <laughs> you can't really go too wrong with, with Beethoven. No. And the Beethoven, so, the Beethoven sonatas seem like such a personal um, document by the composer. I mean, there's the symphonies, but then these sonatas, this is just one person speaking to one other person. I think that's right. I think, first of all, the fact that there's only one performer involved, the fact that it was Beethoven's own instrument, the piano, and the fact that, you know, in those days there were not really public piano recitals. So these pieces didn't have to be playable or decipherable to, you know, early 19th century audiences to be successful. So he could really experiment and uh, 
and write things that were ahead of their time to a greater degree than was possible in the symphonies. The symphonies, people had to really be able to play them or there were consequences for Beethoven. So you, I think his innermost thoughts, you know, this is where you find them. Jonathan Biss, it's been such a pleasure to be able to speak to you and I hope we'll have another opportunity sometime in the future on whatever path music takes you. I hope so too, thank you very much. All right, have a great day. You too, bye-bye.